Dead Air by Scott Overton. Previously in Dead Air, under a death threat from an unknown enemy, radio host Lee Garrett has survived the sabotage of his car on a brutally cold night, but the police have no leads. Even so, there's some light in Lee's life in the form of a growing relationship with CNIB worker Candace Ross. Now, here's Chapter 14. Monday, his show sparkled. The punchlines popped and spawned more, just like in the old days. He was in a groove. Even Dale Lawson was witty. They laughed when someone called asking for Dale Awesome. The bubble burst when he got into an argument with Chuck Norwood and Hal Leonard in Ellis's office about the ratings promotion that had begun that week. People entered the contest by filling out ballots at Greensleeves Restaurant. The winner would have the morning show broadcast from their home, along with a lavish breakfast delivered by Greensleeves. Lee insisted that it had nothing to do with improved ratings. There was no requirement to listen to the station in order to win. It was nothing more than added value to a sales package with Lee as the icing on the cake. Leonard was a good sales manager, and Lee liked him, but he was totally incapable of seeing the distinction between a ratings promotion and a sales vehicle. To him, you made the sale any way you could. If it wasn't illegal or against your religion, he didn't understand how anyone could object. Although this was a battle Lee had lost more than once, he still couldn't surrender without a fight. My job is to deliver listeners to this radio station, he seethed. I'm not a piece of property for sale or rent. There are words for that. Are you finished? Maddie's steel tone should have warned him off. Or has everybody around here spent so much time on their backs they're getting to enjoy the view? That's enough! Her hand cracked against the desk. Are you saying you refuse? Do you really think you're in a position to do that lately? The words slapped his face and took his breath away. He struggled to his feet and stepped toward the door. As he pulled it open, he rasped, Maybe you should start thinking about a plan B, Hal. But he was looking at Ellis. When he turned away, he nearly flattened Norwood's assistant Pam as she stood stunned in the hallway. He cursed his reflection in the pot lid as he heated some beans for lunch. Didn't he have enough trouble without trying to get fired? He didn't even object to doing his show from someone's house. He'd done it before, and it was usually a good time. But now he'd backed them all into a corner, including himself. Had he left Ellis any room for compromise? He didn't think so. Things said in private might be forgiven. They'd been friends a long time. Insulting her in front of an audience ensured that she'd stick to her guns. As a leader, she couldn't afford to do anything else. He was in no position to refuse the assignment. He'd have to go ahead with the contest and keep his mouth shut. Maybe that way the whole thing would blow over. He hated to know he was in the right, but also in the wrong. Why couldn't anything be black and white anymore? When he lay down after lunch, he thought about a ratings giveaway from a couple of years back. They'd sent five couples to Jamaica. Now, with the accountants running the circus, there was never more than one grand prize winner. Lee had even gone along as an escort. He'd had a fantastic time until he'd come back home and learned the cost. The colors of Jamaica were what stayed with him, sand as white as the teeth of the bar girls who brought him drinks, rainforest green so liquid he kept expecting the leaves to drip from the trees, and the Caribbean water. When they put that blue on a postcard, it always looked fake. 
a northern-grown brain simply refused its reality. Snorkeling had been heaven just offshore from Duns River Falls, hovering over a reef of colors in crayon box profusion only inches from his chest one moment, dropping away the next into grottoes and valleys and arches six feet deep or more, uncountable schools of fish in extravagant costume ball finery. He'd fallen in love with the perpetual humor of the island's people. His contest winners were a great bunch, too. There'd only been one cloud over the trip, but it was a thunderhead. Michaela. How could everyone have overlooked the fact that his wife would want to go, too, would expect to go? When Lee found out she wasn't included, only a week before the departure, it was just after one of their increasingly frequent fights, a gloves-off screaming match. Otherwise, he might have insisted that the station include her, or refused to go himself, or bought her a ticket with their own money. He did none of those things, and Michaela never forgave him. She and the kids were gone when he returned home. He used the last of the milk in some mushroom soup he heated for dinner, so afterward he took the car to the corner store. Coming out with the milk, some lottery tickets, and a bag of Doritos, he saw a truck with the Interfreight logo parked at the bar across the street. Could it be Tucker? He could use some friendly company. The bar was a murky pit that made the outside dusk look bright. He finally spotted a guy with an Interfreight uniform at one of the tables, but it wasn't Tucker. As he turned to leave, someone else caught his eye. A wiry figure sitting at the bar was turning a cigarette lighter over and over in his fingers. Lenny Schwartz Lee pushed the exit door, but was stopped by a thought. Schwartz was drinking alone. A man didn't do that if he had friends to drink with. Could he be an alcoholic who'd driven his friends away? Maybe the man's surly character was just loneliness. Lee knew what that was about. He sighed and stepped back inside. Mr. Schwartz? The bar stool creaked under him. Garrett. The word could have been cockroach. I know you don't like me. I think we got off on the wrong foot. How about I buy you a beer? The only answer was silence, so Lee waved two fingers at the bartender and bottles of Molson Canadian clinked into place in front of them. A few deep swallows of the beer weren't enough to help him find the perfect words. He'd have to wing it. Don't sell Candace Ross short. She really does care about Paul. I don't need a lecture from you. No, but you want what's best for Paul. So does she. I think he's pretty special, too. Big of you. Alcohol wasn't the only reason Lenny Schwartz didn't have friends. It can't be easy looking after him. His parents were killed by a drunk driver, right? You must have worked hard to get custody. I was married then. Makes all the difference. Except the bitch never wanted kids. Said it was wrong to bring him into a shitty world like this. You radio stars wouldn't know about that. She left? Not until she had her fill of whining and figured out how to take most of my money. No grandparents? You sound like a fucking social worker. My mother's in a home. Father's dead. Good thing, because if he'd laid a hand on Polly, I'd have had to kill him myself. The other grandparents are in Finland. Their English ain't good, but I used to send them pictures all the time. Until Polly had his accident. Now there ain't nothing worth sending. He drained his beer. Lee ordered another, and it was claimed without comment. That's when your wife left you, when Paul went blind? Whore wasn't gonna nursemaid no blind kid wasn't even hers. He was always good to her, too. Jesus, he's a good kid. Never thought anything that good had come out of our family. The face softened for a moment, but then his jaw went stiff. What the fuck do you care? 
bring your Blue Jays crap around, make like you're some kind of hero and I'm an asshole. I've never tried to come between you and Paul. I hurt his feelings by accident and wanted to make it up to him. Turns out he's a great kid, but you must realize you need help. Schwartz's eyes spat fire. I don't need any help from you. Not me, Candace Ross. Oh, right, Radio Hero's new squeeze of the week. Lee slid off the stool. All right, dickhead, have it your way. Keep thinking that Paul can't enjoy the things you used to do together. Take all that away from him. Then drive away all the other people who want to help him, and what's left will be your own goddamned fault. He pulled on his coat. It's pretty clear which one of you is really blind. He stalked out of the man-made darkness into the honest night. When he got back to his apartment, snow had begun to fall. There was a message on his answering machine from Dan Arnott. He groaned and called the program director at home. Lee, they say this one might be the mother of all snowstorms. The streets could be impassable by tomorrow. We've decided to put the morning crew up at the Radisson overnight. You can walk from there if the snow's deep. Dale's got an apartment just off Mackenzie Street, so she won't have a problem. Are you serious? Sure, it's ratings. Can't have the morning team off on a weekday. Why says you've done this before? Yeah, my first winter here. Most of the storm missed us. Just get your ass over there, all right? When Lee checked into the hotel, he found Wise, Wright, and J.J. in the bar with beers in front of them. Larry, Barry, and Jerry. A name for a comedy team, maybe. They seemed to think so, from the way they were laughing. Already on their third round. Sure, they'd make it to the station in the morning, but they wouldn't be able to read for shit. Lee hesitated, then ordered a Heineken. The drinks would be on their hotel tab, which would be paid for in advertising. We'll be hearing Radisson ads for a month after this, Wise said. Two months, if I have anything to do with it, Wright hoisted his glass to a roar of approval. Tell the truth, Lee, those sore hands of yours, you really just burned them on a hot piece of tail, right? Ooh, wonder if there's any tail on the loose around this place tonight, Wise mused. Why couldn't there be a convention of professional lap dancers or something? J.J. almost spit out a mouthful of beer. Look, that one got somebody all excited. Wright started lifting the side of the table with his hand. Down, J.J., down, boy! Keep that love muscle under control, would you? Their laughter drew looks from a couple of staff members near the door. Careful, son, Wise drawled. That little filly over there got her eyes on you. Looked like her saddle's ready to plumb wear your old cowboy right down to the nub. Need bandages on him, just like on Lee's hands last week. I know why his hands needed bandages, Wright leaned forward. New issue of Penthouse show up in the mailbox, Lee? I thought I heard the sound of rabble all the way from my room on the third floor. Sandy Shell was walking slowly to their table. Her perfect blonde hair made Lee feel windblown. You took long enough, Wise said. It's Barry who has the problem with arriving prematurely, not me. Her morning show partner groaned and mimed being stabbed in the heart. See how she treats me every morning, he said, like a dominatrix, but without the sex. The newswoman's presence didn't change the tone of the conversation. She was on her second beer when Lee left for the men's room. J.J. followed him in. As they returned to their table, Lee asked, J.J., you see a lot of racism in this city? Still thinking it skins after you, man? Yeah, a few rednecks here and there. Not too much. Somebody's on my case, but I don't know if it's skins or not. 
I would have thought a gang of kids would have better things to do than keep coming after me. That's why I wondered if there are real hard-case bigots around. Beats me, J.J. shook his head. I can usually tell from the way somebody looks at me if they got a problem with my skin or not. Or maybe I just think I can. After a second beer, Lee called it quits and went to bed. No one else moved. He was grateful they'd been given separate rooms. He had no desire to spend the night listening to drunken snoring or vomiting. When his travel alarm woke him, he went over to the window. Even from the third floor, he could tell the snow on the street was deep and no plow had come by. The snow was still coming down, blown nearly sideways by the strongest gusts. There would be drifts. Smaller streets would be clogged. Most people wouldn't be going anywhere. Tim Horton's was open, but the evening shift was still on duty, their replacements unable to get to work. The eyes of the girl at the cash were red-rimmed. Lee took a coffee and a toasted bagel, hoping they wouldn't be stone cold by the time he got to work. The others gradually arrived at the station. Sandy Shell was immaculate. Wright looked like a homeless guy who needed toothpicks to prop his eyes open. Wise wasn't much better, but J.J. looked the same as he always did. All of Lee's prepared bits were set aside. On a morning like that, people didn't want to hear about anything but the weather and how it was going to affect them. The phone lit up like a movie marquee, but it was always kids or their parents wanting to know if the schools were closed and the buses cancelled, usually right after Lee had mentioned all those details on the air. Snow depth, highway closures, accidents, event cancellations. The information came in, and he gave it back out again. It took more stamina than talent, but he didn't mind. These were the times people really needed radio, and nothing else could deliver the goods so quickly. He was tired when he got off the air. Most of the office staff hadn't made it in yet, so there were no ads to record. He could leave early. The snowplow crews had begun to get the upper hand on the main routes by then. Most of the side streets bore single sets of deep tracks where drivers had followed the easiest path. A plow had just made a pass through Lee's Street before he got to it, so he could reach his driveway, though the mouth of it was blocked by snow. He'd have to shovel before he could get the car in. Roy Lester used Lee's arrival as an excuse to take a break from clearing his front step. Some storm, eh? Closed my office. Not that I mind a day off. Streets bad all over? The city's a mess. Crews probably won't get to most of it before late afternoon. I'm amazed they plowed our streets so soon. It's cause we got seniors on the street. In his late fifties, Roy clearly didn't include himself in the assessment. At least Rich has the day off high school. Now if he'd just get out of bed, I could put a shovel in his hand. He laughed. Wish I knew where the damn cat was, though. Didn't come home last night. Suppose she'd find shelter somewhere. He resumed his shoveling, and Lee continued up the driveway, pulling his collar high to block a gust that tossed snow at his face. The walls of the two houses on either side of a narrow driveway channeled the winter winds, producing some formidable drifts. He'd shoveled only two days earlier, and scattered lots of salt around to melt the ice, especially near the door. He grimaced as he pushed through snow that topped his boots and seethed down to his socks. Afterward, the scene would be etched into his brain in vivid detail. Drifts like dunes, especially one large one over the concrete stoop at the side door. Snow patches dotted haphazardly over the brick wall. A miniature white cyclone swirling crystals back into the air. He had his keys out, hand raised to grasp the handle of the storm door, when he saw a small, mottled, tan and white bundle, half covered by white, lying at his feet. Tiger, the Lester's cat. She was clearly dead, frozen stiff, he thought. 
He sighed and stooped down, setting his briefcase onto the snow. It created a small cascade down the pile, revealing a strip of black. His hand froze. He used the briefcase to brush away more of the snow. Black cable? What the hell was black cable doing against the door? He snapped upright and quickly backed away. Black cable! Electrical cable! Now he could see the bare wire in contact with the metal of the storm door. In dumb horror, he swept his eyes along the bottom of the wall toward the street. He looked at the hydro pole at the end of the driveway and the long black whip that trailed down and vanished into the snowbank beneath. Christ almighty! A live hydro wire. A wire that would turn a moist metal door into a death trap. He skittered away another few feet and began to shake. With fear, rage, he didn't know. His eyes were locked on the innocuous door and the damning mound of fur at its foot. He backed slowly to the reassuring solidity of the Lester's wall and slid to the ground. Storms blew down hydro wires. A strong wind could snap one around like the tail of a kite. But he knew it hadn't been that way. The storm wasn't the villain, only the accomplice. Someone had meant for him to touch that door. The pretense was over. Someone wanted him dead. That's Chapter 14. Now our episode continues with part of Chapter 15 as Lee has to battle with station management to stay on the air. Lee was an automaton. His instincts were sharp, the words came out smoothly, but as soon as the mic was off, he stared blankly into space. At 7.45, he'd been answering the phone for a contest, planning to record the winning call and play it back in a few minutes. 6.20 the box, you're the sixth caller, so what's the name of the wind song from last night? There was no response. Hello? You're the sixth caller, so you've got the chance to win if you know last night's wind song. Is that the dead man? A deep, gravelly bass, electronically altered to sound that way. What? Who is this? There was a click and a dial tone. It droned for twenty seconds before Lee punched the button to kill the line. Dimly, he registered that the song was halfway through and the phone was flashing again. He brought up the next line and took down the caller's information, but there wasn't enough time to queue up the recording and play it on air. He'd mentioned their name. That was all he could do. Then he realized that he hadn't even asked them to name the wind song. They'd have a laugh at his expense. Minutes later, the phone line flashed again. Lee started the computer recording and took the call. Good morning, 620 the box. Hello, dead man. The dial tone whined, and Lee nearly threw the handset against the wall. After that, he was on autopilot, the rest of his brain trying to make sense of what he'd heard. At nine o'clock, he called Detective Davis. Doesn't the station have caller ID, she asked. No need, usually, just extra expense, and the control board isn't wired for it. Well, I'd suggest somebody cough up a little money and get it. If you can email a copy of those phone calls, we'll go over them. It's probably too much to expect an identification, but we might narrow the search a little, tell if it's a man or a woman, old or young. And since they obviously know where you live, I'm going to arrange for some video surveillance of your apartment. The radio station, too, if your boss will allow it. Meanwhile, I'll get forensics out to your place and see what we can come up with. Maybe a neighbor saw somebody climbing that pole. I'm assuming the cable's been repaired. Yeah, not until nearly 9.30 last night, though. I wore out my welcome at the neighbor's. All right, I'll track down the hydro worker, see if he can remember whether the cable looked broken or was cut, though I'm almost willing to bet he won't be sure. So far, whoever's doing these things has left us with nothing. 
but at least no corpse either, Lee thought. Not yet. The call from Candace took him by surprise. Lee, I'm not sure how to ask this. Did you send me something? No. Like what? Like flowers? You didn't have a bouquet of flowers delivered to me at work? No. He wished he'd thought of it. Then he had to remind himself they were only going to be professional acquaintances. You mean there's no card? There is, but it's only signed with the initial L. I figured that would be you. Sadly, I'm not that gallant, romantic or smart. Choose your adjective. You must know other people. He caught his breath. Lenny, it could also stand for Lenny Schwartz. The phone line buzzed with a harsh laugh. You can't be serious. Although he did send me a small bouquet once, soon after I started working with Paul, I wasn't on his hate list for the first week or so. You probably aren't now either. The man just doesn't have any social skills. Maybe this is his way to apologize for being a jerk last weekend. Or maybe Paul put him up to it. Kids can get strange ideas. Like trying to match me with Lenny Schwartz? That's... that's just creepy. Lee laughed. Well, sorry to say, it wasn't me. The silence after that had begun to feel awkward when Candace spoke again. Uh, okay, well... I realized the other day that we hadn't uh, made any plans to see Paul again or anything. Without her usual confidence, her voice sounded like a stranger's. No, I guess we didn't. Well, what about Friday? Are you busy? To go see Paul? No, actually, I was thinking more like dinner, you and me. Dinner? You mean a date? I've heard it called that, yes. She gave an embarrassed laugh. So much for keeping his distance. A niggling voice in his head insisted that it would not be a smart move. Not a good idea at all. If you can't make it... No, no, I was just checking my day timer. Sure, Friday's good. She suggested a restaurant, and he offered to pick her up. They traded goodbyes, and he stood staring into space, oblivious to the phone that remained in his hand. He was still standing there when he was paged to the boardroom. Ellis closed the door behind him. Dan Arnott, Chuck Norwood, and Hal Leonard were at the table. Arnott was making a conscious effort to keep his hands still. Leonard swiveled back and forth in his chair. Their carefully blank faces told Lee he was the topic of conversation. As soon as he was seated, Ellis asked for the latest news on his situation. He'd hoped to talk to her alone, but it couldn't be helped. He told her about the storm and the call that morning. "'Jesus! H. Christ!' Ellis breathed. "'Well, that pretty much settles it.' Settles what? What are you talking about? She looked around at the other faces. The past few weeks we've all tried to believe that whoever's doing these things would get tired of the game and just let it drop. Then you were nearly killed. Now you're saying someone actually set a trap for you at your own house. Someone is trying to kill you. There's no way to pretend it's anything else. I'm not trying to pretend. Then you'll understand why we decided to... She paused. Pull you off the air. What? Maddie, no, listen to me, Lee. This may not be about who you are, but what you are. He looked at her in confusion. You're a celebrity, Arnott said. A lot of sad people try to steal their own moment of fame by hurting someone famous, like Mark David Chapman with John Lennon. Or maybe whatever got this prick angry at you is like a festering sore. He doesn't get over it because every day he turns on his radio and there you are, and he gets pissed off all over again. He's tried to scare you off or shut you up, but every morning he hears you come on as if nothing has happened, and it's like a taunt. You missed me. A red flag waved in front of a bull. 
So you remove the red flag and the bull comes down. Is that it? For how long? A month? Two months? A year? Or is that really the point? Lee scanned their faces again. It's the publicity, isn't it? It's not just that you're afraid he's going to kill me. He looked directly at Hal Leonard. You're afraid he's going to kill me at someone's remote. Lee Garrett spread out on the floor between the TVs and the Blu-ray players. Not so good for sales. Stop it, Lee. That's uncalled for. Alice's face was red. We're trying to keep you out of harm's way. I might give you the benefit of the doubt on that one, Maddie, but think about it. What if I come back after a month and whoever it is just picks up where he left off? What then? We'll only have wasted company money and at least two hot ratings weeks. He looked at Arnott but didn't like the expression on the man's face. They haven't tried to hurt me in any public place. Maybe that's not what they're after. Meanwhile, I'd be a prisoner in my apartment with nothing to do but think of them out there waiting for me. I can't afford to go anywhere. Is that your idea of being helpful? He sat back. Or is it really about the publicity? Be honest with yourself. Norwood said softly, You're talking about living as a target, a sitting duck. They know where I live, Lee said simply. Tell me how coming to work makes it any worse. And frankly, he swallowed and turned back to Ellis, whoever it is, they're being too careful. The police have nothing. It may be the only way to catch them is to draw them out. And catching them is the only way I'll ever get my life back. He wasn't appealing to his boss, but his friend, and she knew it. She sat still for a long time, leaning on the table and staring into its surface, as if looking for the wisdom of Solomon. All right, Lee, she said at last. You stay on the air for now. She quickly cut off the protest that began. That's my decision, for now. If the situation changes, no promises. In the meantime, keep on the cops' asses. Tell them if they catch the bastards, we'll contra them the biggest batch of doughnuts they ever had. It was a strained attempt to lighten the mood. The room emptied like the parlor of a funeral home. No one would look Lee in the face. Do we all overestimate the number of real friends we have? He wondered as he watched them go. Join me for the rest of Chapter 15 of Dead Air as Lee learns some things about friendship under pressure. And a date with Candace Ross brings some welcome proof that life is still worth living. Music was provided by Audionautics.com, and I invite you to check out my website, scottoverton.ca, to learn more about radio or get your own copy of Dead Air. I'm Scott Overton.